Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It's Friday, the 2nd of October. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Gary Groman, giving us another update on the COVID-19 vaccines and helping us to set our expectations more realistically and to understand that vaccines by themselves will not be the silver bullet. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Uh, Dr. Gary Groman, can you please tell us about yourself? Yes, I um, uh, have worked for the Therapeutic Goods Administration for 17 years, looking after the registration of uh, vaccines and scientific matters, and also for the World Health Organization in the last four years. Uh, and prior to that, I had a research career. Now, Gary, there are now more than 34 million people with confirmed COVID-19 globally, more than a million deaths, and the pandemic seems to be growing unabated. Hopes are being pinned on the vaccines and rapid testing kits. Where are we now with the various vaccines and the anticipated rollout timelines? Yes, so the um, vaccines uh, that are uh, in phase three clinical trials are around about 11 vaccines, and most of those are messenger RNA vaccines, and some are protein-based or viral vectored vaccines. So. There's 11 of those in phase three studies and in, in large phase three studies. And we won't really know much about those until the end of the year in terms of da data. Uh, there are another five as well that have been approved for early or limited use. And these are from, the, 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 there are three in China from Sinopharm, the Wuhan Institute, Beijing Institute and Sonova. Uh, and there's also the Sputnik V from Russia and the CAN. Uh, Symbio as well. So most of these are in Russia and China that have been pre-approved for use, but that just means they're also undergoing large-scale uh, clinical trials now having undergone smaller-scale phase two, phase three studies. So we just need to wait and see until the end of the year for the actual data there. As you know, there's been a hiccup with the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, in that it was halted briefly and now it's restarted in two countries, but not in other parts of the world. And um, there's also been a little hiccup with the DNA vaccine Inovio, in that the FDA has asked a number of critical questions. Uh, we don't know exactly what those questions are, but the company will need to respond before the um, vaccine trial can continue. But uh, we do know their questions are around um, uh, the uh, use of the Selectra device that delivers the vaccine, which uses electroporation to get the DNA into cells. Uh, and we, and some of the questions are around that. 
and others are around the vaccine itself. And again, uh, the company has about a month uh, to answer those questions. And then if all is well, the trial will then continue. This is not unusual, as I've mentioned before, that regulators will stop trials and ask certain questions, uh, looking at early data and so on. Uh, and as they uh, review what's uh, going on with, with each vaccine trial. Now, I understand that with the Oxford-AstraZeneca, uh, the countries that have resumed are doing what I think is called a rolling surveillance, but America FDA are waiting on particular data sets that I am not familiar with. Um, is, that a, is that a usual or unusual scenario with vaccines? Well, each regulator has its own uh, set of rules, if you like, sometimes embodied in legislation like Australia and Europe, uh, or independent statutory authorities that uh, have their own um, mechanisms to ensure the vaccines are safe uh, uh, in cases. And, and initially, of course, the emphasis is very much on safety and immunogenicity. Efficacy comes after. But as long as the phase two is showing reasonable immunogenicity uh, and excellent safety, then of course the trial can go ahead. But as the phase three goes on, there might be some safety issues that creep up. And so this is under code, of course, so we don't know if they're in vaccine groups or control groups. So partially the study has to be decoded to find out whether that particular person was in one group or another. And then, of course, it has to be investigated by local ethics committees, the regulator, and, of course, the pharmaceutical company and groups that are undertaking the vaccine trial. But it's not unusual, but every regulator does have a different approach, slightly. Moving away from safety, I, I want to just look at um, issues regarding efficacy. Now, Gary, let's look at a couple of scenarios and assume that a vaccine is only, say, 50% effective. And I would like to just understand what a 50% effective vaccine can do for a country like the USA or Brazil, if you look at daily life and opening up of the local economy, will it have a significant impact? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's good to start with the idea of immunogenicity first. So we know it's going to be immunogenic in the sense that antibodies and T cells uh, responses are appropriate and of a reasonable level. But that doesn't translate into efficacy or protection of a particular individual from an infection. So if it's only 50% efficacious or effective, then what that means is that, well, for at least half the people, um, they will probably get the infection. Now, it won't stop spread. So that needs to be understood. But there may be secondary endpoints that are very, very useful, like it may stop uh, severity or people becoming hospitalized or people going to ICU, it may reduce mortality. So regulators and um, governments will then have to decide whether uh, such a vaccine is useful or not. Um, now, flu is a good comparator because it too is only 50% effective, but nevertheless, on CDC data and other published data, it clearly shows that the more severe end of the spectrum is reduced. In other words, hospitalizations and deaths. And so that's useful. But we need to look at the target groups. If it's only 50% effective in um, the groups we're targeting, which presumably will be uh, those most at risk and then frontline workers and so on, then we still need other things in place. What we can't do is assume it's a silver bullet and then discard things like um, uh, distancing, uh, hygiene and all the other measures we've already instituted. They will absolutely need to continue, even if we have, a vaccine that's 50% effective. 
Now, we don't know how effective it will be in certain groups because most of these studies, but not all, but most of these studies are in fact in healthy 18 to 55 year olds. We don't really have any data in the under 18 and we have just one paper now on a messenger RNA vaccine dosing study in, in older adults. So these adults were between 56 and 70 and others were between 71 uh, and 90. But the problem is only had 20 participants in each age group. But nevertheless, uh, the conclusion was that they did give a protective immune response uh, to the spike protein. But they also found that a higher dose is needed. So uh, the original dose of 25 micrograms, 20, uh, two doses, 27 days apart, was reasonably immunogenic, but uh, at 100 micrograms, it was far more immunogenic. But again, we're dealing with immunogenicity studies and not efficacy studies. But nevertheless, it shows that you probably need a higher dose than you think in more vulnerable people, those with immunosenescence and so on, those with comorbidities. It may well be that we need a higher dose. The difficulty with all these studies at the moment is that we haven't had the time to determine different arms of the study to determine exactly the dose, for example, that will be needed and, more importantly, how safe a higher dose will be. All these things will still be unknown by the time uh, we get to the end of phase three studies. I think we'll have some very nice data for 18 to 55 year olds and a little bit of data for other arms, depending on the study, but the numbers will be small and that will be the criticism, I think, from scientists and regulators. Well, the numbers are so small, is it really useful? And it's a little bit of a shot in the dark, unfortunately, and we, and we also don't know long-term adverse events either, because again, there hasn't been time to study. Remember, most vaccine programs take five to 10 years. There's careful study that goes on in various groups at the level of phase one and two before you even look at phase three. Uh, and we've really uh, moved things along. Uh, every approach has been very, very quick. I wouldn't say it skips certain things, but what it's done is go through them very, very quickly. And uh, we all hope that nothing critical has been missed. But there'll still be questions at the end of these phase three studies. Which brings me to the point again, and I often ask this question, now that we've pretty much crushed the curve in Victoria, and the numbers are actually very low, and New South Wales is looking pretty good at the moment, and if we just say that we maintain these low numbers for quite a while, Gary, seeing that so many things are unknown, should we rush Australians into being immunised? Well, it's a really good question. And I think the general feeling in the community is now a bit of a pause and a question mark. Um, that's a question a lot of people are asking. I agree that uh, what Australia and New Zealand and Taiwan and others have done successfully is actually crush the curve. And that's been done with very good uh, testing and follow-up uh, quarantine has all worked incredibly well. And we can keep doing that and we can crush that curve and, and just have a handful of cases around Australia. We will get to that point if all those social distancing and hygiene measures and general awareness and education, as all that takes root, that I think will get better and better and better. Mm. And we will keep those numbers very, very low. The hiccup in Victoria was obviously unfortunate, but we know the cause in terms of um, supervision and quarantine and so on. Uh, we know the cause of a couple of outbreaks in New South Wales of cruise ships, for example. So. We are now more aware of these uh, more closed community settings that uh, we need to supervise a lot more carefully and we need good supervisors. I think that's the other lesson that 
uh, people have learned. But yes, we can crush the curve. It's done with good testing, uh, good practices. Of course we can. Yeah. And, uh, and we can keep that up. So I've got no problem with that. So in a way, Gary, what you're saying is that if we continue uh, in, on the same path, we actually have some time to, to watch what's happening around the world. Yes, we do, but there'll, there'll be pressures economically for people to um, uh, travel and trade. And uh, uh, we, you know, that can't be closed down forever, obviously, but we can be very, very careful uh, in terms of quarantine of people coming into the country and going out of the country, minimising travel, all the hygiene practices and so on. We really do need to keep that up. When the vaccine comes along, and we're assuming it's going to be only 50% effective or less, um, then... Uh, that will be of limited use, really. And what will happen is, is as people get the vaccine and more waves of virus come along, we're going to get asymptomatic phases that will then lead to herd immunity. Now, this is not uncommon in pandemics of the past. We see this go on. There's usually three to five phases. Uh, they come and go. The asymptomatic group increases. Uh, and um, eventually you get herd immunity. And, and also the other thing to remember is that in general, and I think we're seeing it here again, is that as the virus spreads uh, through the community, so to speak, there are mutations and changes in the virus and it becomes less severe. Severity is ameliorated, uh, therefore deaths start to get lower. You've seen this in Europe where uh, the number of deaths is actually falling, even though the number of cases is increasing. Uh, and we've seen the opposite in Australia where the number of deaths was quite high in Victoria. Um, and the number of cases are starting to drop off. Well, that'll all eventually end up being zero, although the deaths will take time to catch up, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So we not only need, uh, we, we need the usual uh, three main approaches. One is uh, obviously um, non-pharmaceutical measures like social distancing and hygiene. We need uh, work going on on the vaccine. And finally, we need the all important work going on on treatments. And, um, it's very important that that continue and that it not get sidetracked uh, by the development of vaccines, in, in, in my view. There are treatments out there that need to be looked at that are currently available, that are currently registered and simply need to be repurposed. But in saying that, it's not that simple in the sense that studies must be done. You still need uh, double-blind control studies to be sure of any treatment. And, of course, you need to be sure of safety because we're giving these treatments to healthy people, just like we give vaccines to healthy people, uh, if we're going to use it prophylactically. But if we're going to use it therapeutically, then we also need to make sure uh, that it, it's efficacious and safe. Gary, I think you've just raised two different questions in my mind. The, the first, and I'm really unaware of this, let's look at, say, the Spanish flu and other pandemics. Uh, all I remembered was second wave, and I keep hearing second wave, but you just mentioned fourth or fifth. How many waves can one expect out of a pandemic? Well, when you look at the history of pandemics, so generally last four years, this includes the Black Plague over the centuries and various other pandemics, the big flu pandemic. Um, any pandemic usually has several waves. So it, it goes from person to person in the case of flu or COVID, and that's the only way it gets around. Once it gets in, it's going to a virgin population. But there's a significant component of asymptomatic infection which can then infect others and cause clinical syndromes. And that significant component of asymptomatic infection keeps the wave going. So it seems to disappear and then it comes back again, seems to disappear, then comes back again, 
Usually this happens between three and five times. And usually each wave is less in terms of its severity and number. The first wave um, is usually mo of moderate size, the second wave much larger, and then third, fourth, and fifth uh, tend to be much smaller. And this will go on for three or four years. Now, virologists know this. We've seen it you know, again and again. We can study it over the centuries, all the data that's available. And the only thing that works in, uh, initially is things like quarantine. I mean, that's where the word comes from. It means 40 days in Italian. And they used to have the ships off Venice quarantined for 40 days. So diseases wouldn't come in. Uh, and that was very arbitrary, but it worked. So it's it, quarantine and the uh, minimizing of the movement of people is a very key thing when it comes to controlling pandemics. And in this day and age, of course, we have excellent testing. We've got excellent follow-up. We can use IT technology to follow people up and make sure we know where we are or who's visited what restaurant and so on. And all these things give the community confidence to then start going out in the community because we do know that if there is an outbreak or you've been exposed, that you can be identified and followed up, followed up and tested. And if necessary, you can isolate at home for a period of time and get tested again. And all that is going on, and that's helped everyone in Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere to control uh, the outbreaks. So it hasn't been as severe. If you put it into perspective, you know, we've got the dreadful landmark of 1 million deaths around the world, 34 million diagnosed cases, but that's probably 100 million people in the world that have been infected because we don't know the actual number. We just have laboratory confirmed. But there's a huge asymptomatic group as well. So there's probably around 100 million people infected. Now, 200,000 deaths in the UK, 100,000 in India, nearly 150,000 in Brazil, 42 in the UK, uh, 30 in most European countries. Uh, in Australia, we've got, what, 1,000 or less? Uh, we have done extraordinarily well, and I think um, it's a tribute uh, to everyone involved, particularly the Australian pop population that have put these measures into practice and accepted them. But we need to keep doing it. Otherwise, it will resurge uh, in a big way somewhere. And we now have the tools to jump on it and uh, control it. So Australia's done extraordinarily well, not only in crushing the curve, as you say, but also um, minimising the number of deaths, even though there are you know, various unfortunate happenings that occurred in Victoria and excess deaths. But nevertheless, uh, we've still done incredibly well uh, considering the worldwide situation. Gary, look, you know, this three to four years just seems so long away, doesn't it? Look, it does, but um, it's important that um, we wait for a good vaccine, a uh, vaccine we're confident in. And yes, there's going to be vaccines at the end of the year, but we don't know about their quality and efficacy until then. Uh, there are more vaccines coming in 2021, including Australian vaccines, which will be good to get that data. Um, but it would be silly to say, oh, here's a vaccine, let's just sort of give it to people. Mm. I think that would be a very silly approach. We need to be really, really sure uh, that this vaccine is safe and efficacious. If it's only 50% or 40% or 80% efficacious, we need to understand what that means. And what it mainly means is that we uh, need to keep up all the other measures that we That cannot stop. It would, and, and we also need to keep up our research on treatments so the numbers of deaths can be actually eliminated. You know, we, there's no reason really uh, for such a high number of COVID deaths anywhere in the world 
but we need to get onto the treatments a lot faster. They are going to come more quickly. Uh, Regeneron has recently published a paper on their um, engineered antibody that uh, seems to be quite good in early trials. Uh, there are other people using plasma, serum, uh, various other uh, antibody therapies that also seem to be helping people in the early to mid phase, uh, even late phase of the disease. We know this dexamethasone, even though it's in an unpurified form, it seems to help 30% of people in ICU as they think it's saved around about that number of deaths. There's purified uh, dexamethasone that's available, but not yet approved for COVID treatment that can be taken in higher doses. Um, it's more expensive though, won't be available to everyone. There are simple uh, things like uh, statins, angiotensin receptor blockers as well, uh, that are being looked at and studied. There's a study going on in Newcastle. Um, we, we need to wait for the results of all this, but there are treatments out there that can be used. There's also a big study going on with anticoagulants. And of course, there have been many people looking at um, uh, the current antivirals for influenza and other diseases and antiparasitic agents. Uh, that may or may not be useful, but they don't, at the moment at least, seem to be any more useful than good clinical care. But you don't know. We, we Again, studies need to be completed there to find out. Hydroxychloroquine has been in the news and while WHO and NIH have said, well, it's not really much better than placebo in clinical care, there, is, there are now a few studies going on that will be double-blinded controlled studies to actually answer that question. Uh, and that's the kind of study we need. They take time, but it's the only study that really is worth uh, looking at when it comes to the science. Gary, let me see if I can summarise what you've just said. There's so many important points there. So you said that if we've got a vaccine that's 50 80% effective, it doesn't mean that we still can't go out with gay abandon, but we have to be very careful with all the physical distancing things that we should do anyway. And that apart from just looking at vaccines, uh, we need really good trials on therapies and if therapies need to be used not just to treat those who are sick but to be taken as prophylaxis then we've got to be sure that these sorts of treatments are safe as well as effective as well is that right yes absolutely and the prophylactic treatment would obviously go to people who uh, might be at high risk or people that are frontline workers you know mm. that, you know there's there's a whole area there that we haven't really explored enough and we don't want to fall into the social media traps where people say, well, you know, use this or use that or take that vitamin or whatever. These are just simply uh, temporal associations um, of data with results. I mean, it's, they're, they're not proper studies. They're not controlled studies. They're not double-blinded studies. So we cannot make any conclusions about various claims uh, by, from individuals or about any particular product unless there's a proper study associated with it, at least a very good cohort study, at least that, um, but ideally a controlled study. And these things have to be blinded as well, because otherwise biases creep in and preferably done by independent academic or professional scientific groups that uh, do these sorts of trials. Now, this is the kind of distance we need to make sure that what we're offering prophylactically or therapeutically or as a vaccine um, are, are safe and uh, give people confidence. I think 
the community does need confidence. It's not only regulators, politicians, and manufacturers, it's the community needs confidence as well. Otherwise, uh, there's all sorts of things that creep up, particularly with social media, that will then destroy something that could be good, like a vaccine, for, for example. So, you know, people need to have extraordinary confidence in these pr products. And I guess the concern by many people is, well, we are really rushing into this. This is normally, you know, a five to 10 year affair done very, very carefully in various groups and uh, with lots of oversight by ethics committees and regulators and scientists and so on. And, and you publish before you use it as well. So it's peer reviewed, um, et cetera. I mean, there's, you know, there's a whole um, world there in science uh, that we'd normally go through before offering uh, vaccines or therapeutic agents, prophylactic agents to uh, the community. We do, we, we do need to be mindful that the community uh, needs to also be confident. Gary, I really appreciate your very cautious approach. And I'm sure that as things start to appear on the horizon, I, I will be reaching out to you once again to ask you how comfortable you feel about the peer review process and the studies that has been done to things that are about to hit us so that we can make a better and more informed decision. Okay, no, I look forward to it. Uh, there's a lot more data to come and we will know a lot more by uh, November, December um, and earlier next year, we'll probably get regulatory um, input by then and then we'll know where we stand with all the vaccines well, November is not that far away, so I think I'll be speaking with you in the not-too-distant future, Gary. And as always, I thank you for your very measured and very cautious, but also very informative um, discussion. Thank you very much, David. You have a great day, and thanks. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases has exceeded 34 million. The USA has recorded more than 7.2 million cases, India more than 6.3 million, Brazil has exceeded 4.8 million, Russia nearing 1.2 million, Colombia more than 835,000 and Peru with nearly 815,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths has passed another grim milestone exceeding 1 million deaths. The USA recorded more than 200,000 deaths, Brazil nearly 144,000, India nearly 99,000 and Mexico with more than 77,000 deaths. Australia has recorded 26,912 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and only 369 active cases, of which 289 are in Victoria. There are 890 deaths recorded in Australia, of which 800 were in Victoria and 55 in New South Wales. Victoria has recorded seven new cases of COVID-19 and two deaths in the past 24 hours. These figures are fantastic. There are only 32 cases in Victorian hospitals, three in ICU, and three are being ventilated. At the moment, I do not have COVID-19 numbers for the other states. 
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.